Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Just one more thing, grief growers. Do you ever feel trapped, stuck, or silenced in the aftermath of loss? Are you struggling to figure out who you are now or what your life is made of now that death, divorce, or diagnosis has steamrolled through? Whether you're trying to cultivate deeper self-compassion, figure out where grief belongs in your life now, or simply feel like you have more room to breathe, the three words that your heart needs to hear are permission to grieve. Permission to Grieve is the title of my latest book, a tribute to the three little words that changed how I saw myself and my grief after the death of my mom. I know it has the power to change how you see yourself and your grief in whatever loss you're facing. You can find Permission to Grieve now on Amazon. Give yourself more grace, space, and room to breathe in the aftermath of loss, because we could all use a little more Permission to Grieve. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm sitting down with Kristen Meinzer, a podcast host, producer, and author about the sudden loss of her job in 2018. We're talking about what it's like to grieve when a duaholic can no longer do, and why self-love in Kristen's mind is absolutely a verb. Also this week, I'm talking about why it's so, so important to allow our grief to show up in the world, and reading another excerpt from my new book, Permission to Grieve. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to help others find direction get support, and cultivate radical self-compassion in the aftermath of loss. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, grief growers, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. I'm so glad you're here. Please know that if you'd like grief support beyond this podcast, our next live grief support call is this Monday, October 28th at 8 p.m. Central Time. This is hosted on a private YouTube channel that only patrons of this show can access. So if you'd like to support the show and become a patron and join us for the call, please look for the link to my Patreon page in the show notes or visit patreon.com slash Shelby This is an hour long opportunity to share your grief story, connect with other listeners of this show and get some much needed help and resources, especially as the holidays draw near. So I hope to see you there on Monday, October 28th at 8 p.m. Central Time. This week, grief growers, we need to talk about grief as action. In my book, Permission to Grieve, I devote an entire chapter in part two to something called permission to do, allowing grief to become action. This is very, very different from permission to be and permission to feel, which I talked about in the last two episodes of Coming Back, because permission to be, which is all about identity, occurs in the mind. And permission to feel occurs mostly in the heart. 
permission to do is a type of permission that occurs both in the mind and the heart, but primarily exists outside of the body, which is really, really cool. It's a type of grief and grieving that shows up in the physical world around us. Permission to do is all about letting grief take up physical space in the world. Whether you're setting up an altar or a shrine for a loved one in your home, putting together a charity or a 5k in memory of a loved one, doing art or dancing, organizing a trip every year in their memory. It's about allowing grief to show up outside of the tiny confines of your body and impact you and the people around you in the physical world. A lot of people are hesitant to give themselves permission to do because they fear other people will think that they're not healed or that they're stuck or too focused on their loss. But in reality, people have been expressing and memorializing grief out in the world for centuries. Of course, I can't share the entire chapter here with you on Coming Back Today, but check out this excerpt from Permission to Grieve and see if you might need a little permission to do in your life. Permission to Do, Letting Grief Become Action Ritual can transform space and time, can help us tap into the holy, but I think sometimes we just need it to have something small to do because we cannot comprehend the big right then. We need small pieces to hold on to. Carrie Egan, in Fumbling. I'm a big fan of quotes. I don't study them profusely, but when I find a good one, I like it to show up everywhere, from my phone wallpaper to my fridge. But I didn't always operate this way. I leaned on quotes and stories right after my mom died. They gave words to what I was feeling and assured me that I wasn't alone in my grief. But they were always private tucked away in files on my computer or saved as links on Facebook. I didn't share them with the world because I didn't want people to know I needed those quotes to make it through the day. I didn't want people to know I wasn't capable of generating my own inspiration in the midst of grief. Beyond that, I had grown up in a house surrounded by quotes about religion and family, but when my mom died, I felt neither religious nor a part of a family. I worried about somehow appearing incongruent with my surroundings if I had quotes all over the place. What if I displayed something like one of my favorite quotes from my aunt, Opportunity dances with those already on the dance floor, but I hadn't left my apartment in three days. I was afraid of being perceived by others as desperate for inspiration. And I was afraid of being judged by myself for being anything other than inspired once I put these quotes on the walls. It may sound silly to attribute so much pressure, worry, and judgment to one seemingly private and small action, but this was my experience in grief. I was talking to a friend about how I felt like I needed to see the quotes more often, how it would be cool if they were on my bathroom mirror or my phone screen to remind me that I really was going to make it out of my grief alive. She said, you could do that, you know. I said, what? She said, write them on your bathroom mirror change your phone screen, put them all over your house. I frowned. But isn't that kind of weird to, she cut me off by saying, Shelby, it's your house. Do whatever you want with it. That was the permission slip I needed. I went home and wrote quotes on my mirror with dry erase markers. I filled the walls and surfaces of my house with reminders from others who had walked the road of grief. Kind words that friends and relatives had shared with me became my phone wallpaper like a little reminder in my pocket. When a quote didn't align with me or my grief anymore, I erased it or took it down, 
and put up a new quote that reflected what I needed to hear and see next. I changed my phone wallpaper constantly so that every time I looked down at my screen, there was someone cheering me on. I felt like a curator of inspiration. Suddenly, my grief was taking up physical space in my world. This permission for grief to take up physical space sparked other creative, tangible actions. My grief showed up outside of me. I built a little altar to my mom on my dresser and included photos of her, a candle, and a crystal that I found to be really beautiful. As my family approached the one-year anniversary of her death, I helped coordinate a trip to the Redwoods to scatter my mom's cremains, kicking off an annual Mom's Deathiversary trip. I began sharing stories and quotes I loved on social media, talking more about the grief I was learning from and experiencing every day. Once I felt like I had permission to do, to create, my grief appeared outside of my heart and my mind. I planned things, wrote things, made things. No medium was off limits. No longer was my grief limited to internal processes, i.e. my emotions and my changing identity. With permission to do, my grief became external, out there in the world for me, and sometimes others, to see. Permission to do is about letting grief have free expression out in the world. It's allowing yourself, and sometimes others, to express your grief through making things, saying things, and doing things. It's asking yourself, how would I like to honor my grief today? And letting grief's physical manifestation, however it appears, be okay. If you're looking for more ways to incorporate your loss into your life, check out my new book, Permission to Grieve, on Amazon. If you like the excerpt and the way that it sounds, it's also available as a full audiobook on Audible, too. And you can always find a link to Permission to Grieve in the show notes. This week, I challenge you to look around and ask yourself how you're honoring your loss in the physical world. Whether it's through a fridge magnet or a fundraiser, there are so many ways to let grief have a voice in the world around us. Up next, I'm talking to Kristen Meinzer about the sudden loss of her job. Grief is setting sail, twice, on the 2020 Bereavement Cruises. To join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart-healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea, request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruise's organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Kristen Meinzer is an award-winning host, producer, and former director of nonfiction programming for Slate's sister company, Panoply. Her hosting credits include By the Book, We Love You, and So Can You, When Megan Met Harry, and other podcasts. Her producing credits include Happier with Gretchen Rubin, The Sporkful, Girl Boss Radio, and over a dozen other shows. And Kristen is also the author of the new book, So You Want to Start a Podcast, which Publishers Weekly called Invaluable. She joins us now from Brooklyn. Grief Growers, I am so thrilled to invite Kristen Meinzer here on Coming Back today. She is one of my 
touchstones in terms of podcast influences and inspirations, but she also has a really interesting law story that we don't talk about here often on Coming Back. So Kristen, welcome to the podcast, and I'd love if you'd start with your law story for us. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, so the last story that I want to talk about happens to fall on roughly the one-year anniversary of it happening, and that is me losing my job. And what happened was the podcast production company I was working for uh, told me about a year ago that they were closing their doors and they were no longer going to be producing content. They were going to be working more on ad sales and distribution and other kinds of parts of the business, but no longer on content making. And I was their director of nonfiction programming. I hosted two of their shows. I managed a team of direct reports. And I absolutely loved all the people I worked with. I loved walking into the office every single day and saying good morning to everybody. I loved at the end of the day saying, have a great night. And I loved complimenting people throughout the day on their great work. And it was a loss then, not just of doing work I loved, but of working around people that I loved. And also just as an extrovert, I really get so much of my joy in life from being able to just have those small interactions every day with people. And so it was a loss emotionally. It was a loss professionally. And I had to really think long and hard about who am I going to be without this job? Who am I going to be without these people? And um, I have lost jobs in the past before, but I don't think I've ever lost a job that I felt so emotionally connected to or that I felt my identity was so closely tied up in. So um, that was a year ago and I've worked really hard to think about all those questions that I had about what am I going to be and what am I going to do and what is my day-to-day going to look like. I, I thought long and hard about all those questions back then and I continue to visit those questions regularly now. Now that it's a year later, I don't even fully have all of those questions answered. But um, yeah, it was a major loss for me and it's something that I don't think has destroyed me by any means and I think I've come back from it in ways that I didn't even imagine. But I think it's important that we talk about job loss. I think that it hurts when it happens and um, and I think that there's a lot of shame around it. I think you're absolutely right. And I love that you touched on this idea of identity because that's the cocktail party question is, hi, your name is, okay, what do you do? It's just like Mm -hmm. the immediate segue that people do. And so this alignment that we have with our jobs as a form of identity is massively huge. And so to take, it's like taking the leg off of a three-legged stool, all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it falls over. It's like, who the heck are you now? And that's a question that comes up a ton in loss. And we just don't honor how big job loss is because i mean you even listed down you know i lost this group of people i lost this ritual i lost this literally like a location to go to a physical space to enter as well yeah and one thing i didn't mention is that a lot of people have said over the years that i'm a workaholic um one of my mentors who i just love he says you're not a workaholic you're a doaholic. You like to do things. You like to have a full plate. You like to have a list of tasks that you have to accomplish every day. And your therapy to a great extent is doing. And people self-soothe in lots of ways. Some people put on um, facial masks at night or burn candles or do yoga. And for other people, it's the joy of actually doing things like work that, and I'm one of those people I absolutely just love to do. So, um, Part of my 
you know, self-soothing was taken away too. It was my identity. It was my location. It was my community. Um, but it was also one of the things I do to be happy was just taken away. So what does a duaholic do when they're told they can no longer do? <laughs> well, I started to plan. Well, first I had um, two margaritas back to back. Yes. And, <laughs> and I let myself feel sad and I talked with all of my direct reports and I let them know that I valued them and I was as shocked as they were and I would do anything I could to help them. I started pounding the phones to try and network so that my direct reports would have new jobs lined up. I was actually more concerned about them than I was about myself in some ways because um, I'm very, very fortunate. I'm married and I, um, I knew I could get health insurance through my husband. Most of my direct reports were unmarried and they would be losing their health insurance at the same time. So I was trying to help them immediately um, because I knew that this was more of a immediate crisis for them. But then also that was another form of doing. So if I'm a duaholic, one thing I knew I could do was try to help my direct report. So it was also self-serving. It was a way to help soothe myself was, I know I can do all of these things right now for my people. But then I got to doing other things. I, um, I got a book deal. So I wrote a book and it took me about two months to write that book, but I did it. And I knew that I had to work to move my at least one of my shows over to another network. I host a show called By the Book with Jolenta Greenberg, and we need to, needed to move By the Book somewhere because if this content arm was shutting down, um, our show wouldn't be produced there anymore. What could we do? Could we buy the rights to the show back? If we couldn't buy the rights to the show back, was there um, the possibility of another podcasting company buying the rights for us and then hiring us to make the show there? And so we weighed a lot of options and we, um, we'd already been in contact with an agent, but we signed, you know, we signed our papers and made it official with that agent. Uh, shout out to Liz Parker, our wonderful agent. And she helped us negotiate um, a new place to land, which was Stitcher with our show. So we were able to move our show. We were um, able to um, plan our second show, which we recently launched, which is called We Love You and So Can You. It's a makeover show for your heart kind of like Queer Eye, but without all of the hair, makeup and clothes and much more about just trying to help promote self-love with people going through predicaments. So our agent helped us with Buy the Book and We Love You and So Can You. And our agent also lined up our book deal um, that Jolenta and I have together. We have a book coming out in March called How to Be Fine. And she negotiated my book, which just came out in August. And that book's called So You Want to Start a Podcast. So Thankfully, having an agent helped me to put a lot of things back on my do list. So suddenly, you know, I wasn't just flailing around. I had things on my to-do list to do. I had to write a book. I had to write a second book. I had to um, continue making by the book. And I had to start the planning process for the second show. So all of those things, um, if we didn't have an agent, I don't know if any of those things would have happened, to be honest with you. I don't know how I would have just like walked into a publishing house and said, hey, I have a book I can write for you. But I'm just very thankful that there were people there to help with all of that. Um, and so I uh, have to thank my agent and I have to thank Jolenta uh, because I think that if I were just doing this alone, I mean, I'm just, I, I just think we are all lucky to be surrounded by people who want to help us. We might just not know it. And 
during that time, I really realized that was the case that I can just call on a lot of people. I can just put it out there. I want help or I need help with this. And, um, and I'm really grateful that I did that because that's how I got to where I am now. And then in addition to that, I tried to try, I, I haven't fully succeeded in this. I tried to start remedying the other things that I felt were lacking with the job loss. Like, how am I going to make sure I see people every day? And one of the big things that I feared was I would get depressed and I would get lonely and eventually I would just be me in my pajamas all day in the refrigerator watching reruns of Little House on the Prairie, which nothing's wrong with any of those things. They're all wonderful. I love all those things, but I didn't want to be doing that all the time. And so I tried to set up what I call the freelancers club. I'm friends with a few other freelancers. I'm friends with some students. And I tried to set up minimum once weekly work dates with those people. And in some cases, you know, when I meet up with those people, it's not very productive at all. It's people who get stir crazy from being alone all the time. So it turns into like not the most productive work date, but it does force us out of the house and we bring our laptops and maybe we each will just respond to a few emails and not get everything knocked off our to-do list. But it's important for me to see people and that will start off my day. So even if I just do a three-hour block where 75% of my time is a work date where I'm not working, at least it will put the wheels in motion so that for the rest of the day, I'll do more things. So that's been really good. And then um, another thing I've done to make sure that I'm around other people regularly is at Stitcher, the production house where we have Buy the Book and We Love You, Jolent and I asked them, is there a way that you can set aside a desk for us? So anytime we have to come into the office to do a taping of one of our shows or have a meeting, we can just stay in the office for the rest of the day if we feel like it and just work there. We can write scripts there. We can read or do research or planning there. And they were very kind and they now have a desk for us all the time there. So um, between having at least one work date a week and going into the office minimum twice a week, that has kept me from just being pajamas and refrigerator all the time. That's really helped a lot. I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I was introduced to you and your work through first through the podcast Happier with Gretchen Rubin as the producer, and then uh, exactly, and then uh, and then through your own podcast by the book. And this is something that really put me in a place of awe and also astonishment for both you and Jolenta because your job loss happened within the realm of the public eye. It's not like you were sitting in a closet in the IT department of some company that shut its doors. It's you were serving a bunch of people who were waiting to listen to the things that you produce every single week. And all of a sudden in one episode, you're like, now we're homeless. Yes. And we don't really know what to do. And the way in which you communicated that to two listeners, to people who had been on your journey for so long, I thought was really remarkable. So I'm kind of wondering what those conversations looked like in the back end of like, what are we going to tell people? Because I mean, you kind of had the, I don't even know if this was an option for you. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's stop the show until we find another place for this or quickly find another scrounge together, another place for this or some other third option that I'm not thinking of right now. But it felt very, even as a listener, it felt very sudden and unexpected, which adds on to the severity of a loss. Oh, yeah. It, and, you know, we 
on by the book for anyone who's never heard the show um it's a reality show in podcast form in each episode jolenta and i actually live by the rules of a different self-help book it's kind of like recipe testing if you're going to compare it to a cookbook like what if everybody tested every recipe in a cookbook how many would actually turn out okay and how many would fall flat and so every episode jolenta and i live our lives while following a different self-help book and so when i lost my job we were living by a self-help book at the time and so that ended up in the episode and um we decided we weren't going to edit it out we would just be very frank about how it was upending our lives we wouldn't try to gloss over it and it would also just be more fair to our listeners so our listeners if something were to happen with a show if for example we'd have to kill the show entirely they would know that it wasn't us just disappearing on them they'd know the place that it came from and so um we decided just to include it and to be honest about it and um and then on our social media channels to you know as soon as we knew where we landed we let everybody know but we were in limbo for a while but we tried to communicate that through the show so nobody would be wondering what happened one of my favorite books that you lived by i think because it was so controversial um was how to hold a grudge and oh, that was <laughs> i'm so glad that's one of love your this favorites book. i have a couple of favorites on by the book and that one is one of my all-time favorites the other one is the art of dying well because it actually motivated me to get aloa arthur on coming back and she was on oh. about a month ago and it was a She's wonderful amazing. interview i know oh and my so gosh. if grief growers if you have not listened to that episode with aloa arthur it it uh, came out on september 25th and so go back and listen to that one with aloa arthur because she's just an immeasurable presence to behold in the way that yes. she talks about grace and death but i found her through listening to your episode but going back to to how to hold a grudge i read this with the lens of grief glasses on and so a lot of people hold grudges against people who are no longer alive or people mm. who they've divorced from or broken up from or um even hold grudges against themselves as healthy people post diagnosis when they are no longer healthy and so it was just this fascinating book that after you all read it, I was like, I have to read this through the context of grief. But it made me wonder as you were talking about kind of how sudden this this shutdown was and that the podcast production company was closing its doors and going in another direction. And we were in limbo for so long. I'm wondering if a grudge is something that you hold towards them. Mm. Well, you know what? At this point, no. Um, I think at the time, I had a lot of mixed feelings about it and I think any time we lose a job there are going to be questions in our head like you know why wasn't the company more transparent that this might happen why didn't I get a warning um could anything have been handled differently and I certainly had questions like that um and like I said I think most people do have a lot of questions in their mind when uh, a company folds like that but you know there were moments of very high stress where Jolenta and I just didn't know where we were going to land with our shows. We, um, yeah. And, and there was at points definitely some anger, but I wouldn't say it was a grudge. And one thing that, um, I said in the how to hold a grudge episode of by the book, which I think is very true is I'm not really good at holding grudges in that episode. I tried really, really hard to hold a grudge and boy, did I get blowback? Um, we got probably more angry, letters from that one episode than any other episode um because i was trying really hard to hold a grudge and people thought i was being way 
too mean and way too judgmental toward my grudgy when in fact I was just trying to follow the instructions of the book which kind of tell you to do that I'm just not very good at holding a grudge actually I can do it based on the instructions of a book for a two-week period but I'm not really good at it otherwise my general way of dealing with things that other people would hold grudges for is I cut those people out of my life so for example if somebody really really does me wrong I probably just will never talk to them again or um and I'm talking really bad here I'm not talking about like you showed up late for dinner or I'm, I'm talking about really really horrible transgressions um at this point in my life and I think this is something that's only happened as I've gotten older I just cut them out of my life so even if I was more of a grudge holder, there'd be no way for me to hold a grudge against this job I lost because they're out of my life now. Does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And it's kind of like when their doors close, so did yours. I'm just getting mm. this this visual in my brain of like their doors closed. <laughs> You're like, well, my doors are closed to you. Um, yeah, I'm going to walk this other way. I'm going to walk down this hall through this other door. <laughs> exactly. And not even in like a middle finger kind of way. It's just like, well, all right, and you just turn on your heels and go the other direction. Um, I, I wanna I wanna go in a totally different direction for this next question, and it's because I know that you are as obsessed with the Golden Girls as I am. And oh yes. I, Hold on, what are you? Are are, are oh, you? <laughs> I have. This is very complicated. So uh, the Golden Girl that I love the most is Dorothy, but it's because I'm nothing like her. I am a very strong Blanche with a little bit of naive oh. Rose in there. Oh my God, I love that you're a Blanche. I never meet people who just come right out and say I'm a Blanche. Oh no, I'm very proud of it. <laughs> so, so you're a saucy Southern gal. And I am a saucy you, Southern gal. And you just own it. You have no apologies to give. You just own it. Well, that's a very Blanche thing to do as well. Yes. I don't think she ever apologized for any piece oh, of herself. <laughs> never, never. She just was who she was and she owned it and she cherished it. Yeah, yes. that's and great. And who are you on the show? Oh, I'm a total rose. I'm, oh. Most most people say um, that I sound like Rose too because she was her character is from Saint Olaf, Minnesota, which is an imaginary yes. town in Minnesota. But I'm originally from Minnesota too, and some people think I have a strong Minnesota accent. So there's that. But also, I think that she was a pretty good natured person, and for the most part, I think I'm really good natured. And um, I think that she and I um, would patiently i mean I, I would say she and i are both pretty patient people and um pretty you know able to laugh at things and i like to think that i'm as kind as she was i always thought she was very kind well and listening to you speak too about not being able to hold a grudge i think that's a very rose trait as well um and and the reason i bring it up is because in several seasons of the golden girls actually rose gets put out of a job and goes yes. on the job hunt herself and has to deal with things like ageism in the workplace and and her job at the grief center being outsourced and and all this other stuff and i'm wondering if if the show the golden girls has ever influenced kind of how you've progressed through the loss of your job or if there's another like pop culture outlet that's served as a guidepost for you through this because i think that we're so informed by the media that we consume Wow. Well, I'm sure I've internalized a lot of the Golden Girls. I've seen all of those episodes multiple times. I used to watch the show with my Nana, who comes up a lot on By the Book. She was like my best friend for many years until she passed away. Um, and so I'm sure I internalized it. And I'm sure that um, I've gotten a lot of guidance from other places in the world. I absolutely adored um, 
I, I adore Dolly Parton, who also just, she has such a great way about her um, of, you know, you, in order to have the rainbows, you got to put up with the rain is what she always says. And so she just has such a great perspective on things too. So Dolly Parton's another pop culture figure. And then also just to go back to buy the book for a second, when I lost my job and when we lived by the book at the time, we were living by a book called A Simple Act of Gratitude. In A Simple Act of Gratitude, we were essentially supposed to be writing letters every day to people who um, they could be people we loved dearly. It could be a doctor who took care of us. It could even be somebody who did something that was hurtful to us. So um, just to tie it back to pop culture a little bit. So this book by John Kralik, um, we were living by this book at the time and I did exactly what the book instructed. I wrote letters to each of my direct reports to thank them for everything they did. I wrote letters to um, my bosses who fired me. I wrote letters and every single letter was a thank you letter. Thank you for giving me this chance. Thank you for letting me learn by being your supervisor. Thank you for all the good work you put in. I wrote letters to, I was also going through some medical issues at the time. So I wrote to my surgeon to thank my surgeon. Um, I wrote to everybody who helped me and so many people came out of the woodwork to help me during that time. Um, if it weren't for my friends, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what I would have done. There were people who I hadn't talked to in ages who just, as soon as the news was published, reached out to me. I didn't even have to reach out to them. And so I wrote back thank you letters to a lot of people. I wrote, I think, two dozen thank you letters in two weeks, um, all handwritten. And then I also um, emailed a number of people and so on to thank them as well. So um, yeah, so sometimes a little slim volume can you know, of, of a self-help book. I'm not majorly into self-help, as you know, from listening to buy the book. I'm definitely the show skeptic, but that was a book that was also very handy at the time. It was the right book at the right time for me. I think that there's a really important difference between forced gratitude and practiced gratitude, because they can seem really, really similar, especially when you're in the midst of something, you're like, what's a way to kind of not fix this or turn the entire situation around, but how can I inject some different perspective here, even if it doesn't feel good to start off with? And you're here like writing two dozen thank you letters in the midst of this really awful thing that's that's happening to you. And a lot of people who listen to the show and who are in the communities, they ask all the time, like, how can I be happy in the midst of this? I'm like, I don't know if the goal is necessarily to be happy, but if you want to gather a different a different perspective on what's going on. See how far outside of yourself you can see, whether it's seeing to your direct reports or seeing to your bosses or seeing to the friends who supported you or seeing to your surgeons. Like just, if you can see that far, maybe it's just a little one step outside of yourself. And it's a practice. It's not like I'm forcing myself to be happy about this awful thing that's happening. Yeah. And I think that trying to be happy all the time seems so unrealistic to me, actually, because oh my God, one of the great things about being human is we can feel so many kinds of emotions. I love going to see a tearjerker. I absolutely adore it. Um, I love reading something that opens my mind and makes me think, how did I never see things that way? Is that a happy moment or is that one where I'm realizing I, you know, I, I 
I'm thinking more academically. I mean, there are so many other emotions beyond just happiness and life is great if we can feel a wide range of them. We can feel wonder. We can feel sadness. We can tap into nostalgia. There are a lot of different feelings to have other than just happiness. And it's okay to be sad. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that to seek happiness all the time seems like a fool's journey, but to feel all the things. And sometimes one of the things that can help us feel a wide range of feelings is tapping into gratitude or seeing things from other people's point of view or seeking understanding rather than happiness, um, understanding of others and ourselves. Ooh, I like that. Seeking understanding rather than happiness. And that speaks to another guest on Coming Back talked about shoot for neutral instead of shooting for positive. So many people just instantly when they're in a dark place, like, how can I be positive? I'm like, let's let's start with neutral. Not because you're not capable of positive, but just because being in a place of neutral is going to be a little bit easier to access at first. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Although I am somebody who really, <laughs> um, I am somebody who aims for positivity a lot of the time. And Jolenta, my co-host, sometimes is just like, oh, you're such a Pollyanna. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, one thing that Pollyanna did, she wasn't trying to erase the trauma in her life. I don't know if you're familiar with this character, with this book or this movie, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but it was, it was the positivity she tried to tap into wasn't a version of denial of what's bad. It was to give her the fortitude so she could make it through what was bad. That's just a holistic perspective to have on loss. It's like, I'm not going to erase this. I'm going to acknowledge it and then include it with these other practices of gratitude and fortitude so I can face the next hard thing that comes because it's always coming. Mm -hmm. I want to segue into your other podcast, which is called We Love You and So Can You. And it speaks a lot to people who are, who are stuck or down on themselves or kind of doing something that I would call mind circling, where they're kind of stuck in this place of reiterating or rehashing the same conversations in their brain over and over and over again. And what I love about you and Jolenta is you kind of come in as these pattern disruptors as the fairy godmother advice giver types. And you're like, here's what you should do to kind of unstick yourself from this situation. And I'm wondering where this, from the world of self-help and the life that you've lived, where this love of self-love came from. And if how you see yourself and love yourself has changed because you're so intensely focused on this corner of the world of self-love. Mm, well, um, <laughs> isn't it RuPaul who says, if you don't love yourself, ain't nobody else going to. Um, but, and I think so many, you know, figures in the self-help world have said that over the decades, Oprah, you know, everybody we can think of who's, you know, a major figure of, you know, self-confidence and owning yourself. They all say like, you have to love yourself first, right? And I think that's true, but I think it's really easier said than done. And I think it took me a really, really long time myself to accept and love myself. I've gone through long periods of life where I felt um, ugly or invisible or um, where I didn't want to be around, you know, especially when I was younger, there were a lot of periods in life where I thought, I just don't know if I can keep doing this. Life is really hard. And I had a lot of hard things growing up. I, um, uh, I lived in an abusive household. I 
was frequently the only non-white person in my community or in my school or in my classroom. And, um, and a lot of the times I really just was unhappy. And so I, and I tried my best to be cheerful and I was, you know, I was really good at being cheerful, but I wasn't always happy. And I think that I would, you know, I would talk to my Nana and she would say things that were important about self-love and so on. But it it took me actually time to grow into it because I think people can tell you a million times you have to learn to love yourself, but it has to be something that we practice because love is a verb, not just a noun. And so I I don't I don't know how to tell other people necessarily to love themselves, but Jolenta and I on by the book at least try to you you had a really good term for it there, just like disrupt people's patterns where they're not loving themselves and then hopefully give them some suggestions on maybe how they can going forward make plans and take steps and do exercises that can maybe lead them to love themselves a little more. We know we can't cure people overnight. We know we can't fix anyone, but sometimes action is the only thing that will make a difference. So if we give them a set of self-love steps and they start the action of things, then they're doing the work. We're not doing the work for them. They're doing the work. And hopefully, you know, over the course of things, they'll realize, you know, whatever script they have in their head that's telling them they're awful through the practice of doing other steps. Maybe they can disrupt it. Or maybe doing this one little action every single day for a couple of weeks will remind them like, oh, I'm okay. I'm not as much of a mess as I thought I was. Or maybe I'm not broken and it's the world that's telling me that I'm broken that needs to shove it and I'm just fine the way I am. (laughs) I love that perspective is probably my favorite because I love (laughs) much of the work that I do and much of the things we talk about here on Coming Back are about telling the world to shove it because it has these preconceived notions about who we're supposed to be, especially as we're grieving. And and something's coming to me right now from uh, a book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. She's a mm-hmm. therapist who wrote about um, her experience as a therapist with her clients, but then she as a therapist had a therapist of her own. And she talked mm-hmm. about what it was like being in the space, being therapized by somebody else. And she speaks of therapists as the editors of other people's stories. And so people mm-hmm. come to them and ask, will you edit my story? Will you help me see the story from a different perspective? And I think that's so much of the work that you do both on, on by the book and we love you. And so can you, and I love that you said, A, this is something that's a verb. So it's a thing you must do to practice self-love, but also B, it's something that grows. And so it's not like, people are like, just put on a face mask and you'll love yourself. I'm like, that's not how this works at all. <laughs> um and I'm going to take a second actually to, to push back just a smidge on on what you and, and RuPaul and Oprah and everybody else have said about, you know, no one else will love you until you love you. Because I saw, I saw another uh, post that's been circulating online in a lot of mental health spaces about how we can do the work of loving ourselves intensely, but unless we feel like we're part of uh, a community or a chosen family or a friend group where we truly belong and feel loved and held in those spaces, it's it's near impossible to cultivate self-love in an exterior space where you are told you are not loved or accepted or wanted. And it's such a vital conversation that nobody's having yet. Oh, that is such a good point. You know what? You're right. You're right. And I should be careful about mindlessly rattling off like feel-good mantras like that. 
the truth is we all need and deserve a foundation of love. You're totally right about that. And it's really hard not to love ourselves without that. Um, but, you know, I think the reason I sometimes do say things like that quote is just that for me, I know I became much more lovable when I began to do the work of actively loving myself. And I was way more fun to be around when I wasn't constantly telling myself I was garbage and treating myself like the least important person on my list and putting myself down in front of other people all the time. I just know I then became easier to love. But all that being said, I'd like to reiterate, just you are 100% right. We all need and deserve that foundation of love. And that's magnificent. And I think that's the piece of clarity that hasn't yet entered the conversation about self-love because so much of it feels transactional. Like no one else is going to love you until you love you. So everyone's going to withhold their love until you give it to yourself. And sometimes it's like, no, no, that's icky. That feels gross. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you know what? You just convinced me that I need to just make sure I'm not quoting them verbatim and just make it clear <laughs> what I mean by that. And so I think that um, yeah, there's a better way to say it. No offense, Oprah and RuPaul, I still love you. But yeah, there's a better way to say that. <laughs> well, and this is something I love about your podcast too, is that so often uh, you and Jolenta do absolutely the best you can to update yourselves on what are the new ideas? What are the conversations being had on privilege? Where are we in terms of these larger conversations? And so it's like, a, you know better, you do better. You, you learn better, yes. you talk better. <laughs> I don't know a better way to phrase mm -hmm. that, but um, I want to circle back to this idea of self-love in the midst of you losing this job and this identity and this, this ritual of going to work and this idea of work as who you are. Um, I wonder how you cultivated love for yourself at a time when there was a really big opportunity for you to not. Mm. Well, I mean... I knew all along that it wasn't my fault. I had nothing to do with this part of the company closing. So that made it easy for me not to blame myself for anything. Um, but the um, the idea of self-love, I mean, I think that this, this is a tough question because it, it, I, I don't mean to sound pompous here, but it never occurred to me to love myself less during this. The number one thing that occurred to me wasn't, am I going to love myself less? How can I, how can I love myself? But it was, how can I do the things that feed my soul? How can I make sure I'm still working? How can I make sure I'm around other people still? How can I make sure that I'm not letting anybody down? Um, those were much more the questions in my mind than self-love. And, um, and, you know, I, I think I may have felt differently if I was trying to immediately search for another nine to five job and nobody would hire me. I was very lucky that I had enough stuff on my plate, but, um, you know, it can be hard to feel the self-love when it feels like maybe the world's not loving you back sometimes. So, um, I was lucky cause I felt like a lot of the world was loving me back. God, I feel horrible saying that out loud. That makes me sound so pompous and that's not how I mean it to sound. I don't think so. I think your eyes are open in a way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm registering from that is like, uh, and whether it's the, it's the work you've done on by the book, if it's the work you've done off of by the book on yourself in your own life, like there, pompous is not the word I would use. I think aware is the word I would use is that your eyes have been opened in this way to 
look at all of this love that exists around me. And yes, there is there is privilege and there is luck in that to to have it swoop in the instant that you need it. And not everybody is, do I use the word blessed? Not everybody is blessed <laughs> with that. Um, in the instant, something falls apart. But even so, oftentimes, even when things like that happen, sometimes there is an opening or an opportunity for us to stop loving ourselves when loss happens. Like some, sometimes those can go hand in hand. And so I'm really glad that you answered that way because it just makes so much sense to my brain that, that, and it was just, I felt my shoulders drop when you were like, it never occurred to me to stop loving myself. And I think that's, you've gotten to a really healthy place is what that sounds like to my ears. Oh, I feel really lucky about it because I haven't always been in this place. I've definitely, and I think I'm pretty open about it on all of my shows that I've hosted over the years. I'm like, I'm certainly not perfect. And I've gone through a lot of lousy times and I haven't always treated myself the way I deserve to be treated. I've done, I've self-sabotaged and I've turned pain that other people gave me into compounded pain by giving it back to myself. So um, yeah, I feel really lucky that I'm at this point in my life right now. So I'm wondering as we're, as we're drawing closer to the end, if you could write a self-help book for people who have just lost their jobs, what would you call it? Mm, what would I call it? Um, well, I, I want to be careful about not sounding too pat because I, I know people can be in a lot of pain when losing a job. And, you know, the, do you know the song Closing Time by Semi-Sonic? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Closing time. Every new beginning comes, comes from, from some, some other, other beginnings. And yeah. yeah. Um, every new beginning comes from some other beginnings. And or something else I say all the time to people. I mean, to sound a little bit more elaborate. Let me think about this job title while I tell you this. Um, I tell people all the time when... I talk with them about, oh, why haven't I found my dream job yet? And um, it's a letter we get a lot for from listeners that buy the book. And we love you. Like, oh, I feel so old. I'm 38 and I still haven't found my dream job yet. What's the point anymore? And I just laugh. I'm older than 38. so But this is a number we hear a lot, 34, 36, 38. There's something about the mid-30s where a lot of people, it suddenly hits them like, oh, damn this isn't the life I thought I would have. I thought I'd be married by now, or I thought I'd have kids by now, or I thought I'd have this dream job by now, or I thought I would know what my dream job would be by now because I still don't know what my dream is. And I tell everybody, think about Colonel Sanders and think about Julia Child. Colonel Sanders never sold chicken until he was 65, and now there's KFCs over every square inch of the planet. And Uh, Julia Child never took a cooking class until she was 37. And so many people in this world didn't even figure out what they enjoyed, much less what they wanted to do or who they wanted to be with until way past whatever age that you're upset about now. And it's never too late to start again. And you can find another career you'll love. And you can find another career that maybe you don't love, but that pays the bills while you do something else you love. It's okay. Um, There's no one script as far as how someone's professional life should go. And frankly, for anybody my age or younger, if you figure out what you're dreaming of doing by the time you're 55, 
that means you'll have two decades straight of doing that thing before you can even collect social security. So you have plenty <laughs> of time to do that thing. So um, I'm sorry, that's not a really good title for a book. That's like, like 12 paragraphs that is, I don't know, maybe the book title is called Think of Julia Child. Oh, I like that one too. I think I like both. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe one's just on the, the back of the book and one's on the front of the book. <laughs> or like a subtitle or something. We can definitely work with that. But I love that too because I think especially when it comes to, I talk about the three Ds a lot, death, divorce, and diagnosis, these really monstrosity things that totally alter the course of our lives. People are like, well, now my life is over. I'm like, mm, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I agree that it can look that way. And there's something that that Sheryl Sandberg, who wrote Option B, talks about where there's three Ps that step in as soon as loss comes through. One is personalization, the other is pervasiveness, and the other is permanence. And the most dangerous one is permanence, which is the thought that this will be exactly this way for the rest of my life. And, um, and it's something that so many people butt up against when loss rolls through is it's my life is going to look exactly like this for the rest of it. And it's, it's really, really hard to, to come out of. So I'm grateful for forces like you in the world that do the job of story editing and disruption and kind of jumping in and being like, self-love is still possible here and a different path is still possible here. And it's almost like a personal cheerleading service. But from cheerleaders who have also been like, we've seen some shit, <laughs> which is really phenomenal because that's really what you want from the people who are, who are witnessing and bystanding your story is to know that they've also been there too and not have just pointlessly positive people standing by telling you, just get up, you can do it, blah, blah, blah. It's no, no. We've, we've lived in that gravel in that dirt before yeah. in our own ways. And so we know that there's something else coming next not even something else totally different or 180 or um you know, it doesn't need to be fixed just needs to be lived through yeah yeah and sometimes it's going to feel like what you're living through will last forever but it may just be a few weeks or a few months or a few years and that's okay five years is not forever and five weeks or five months or however long it is it's not forever and we and the world changes and the people around us change and our circumstances change. We won't be in that moment forever and our feelings will change and our hearts will change and we'll all be fine. There's so many things that are, yeah. Thank you for touching on all of those things because there's so many factors and facets that change. It's literally impossible for everything to stay the same. And, and there's a lot of, this is a trite word, but there's a lot of hope in that is that nothing will be the same. Guaranteed oh. nothing will be the same after this. Oh, thank goodness. So, <laughs> thank goodness. I know. Thank goodness. I think this is absolutely a perfect place to let people know where they can find you and all of your podcasts and your work and literally any other place that you'd like to be found. Sure. Well, um, we've already talked a lot about Buy the Book, so please check out Buy the Book. If you want to follow our Twitter, it's at Buy the Book Pod. Um, we also host We Love You and So Can You, and the Twitter handle for that is at We Love You Pod. And um, please check out my book, So You Want to Start a Podcast. It is about starting podcasts, but it's also really about owning your own story and how to tell it and how to feel confident in your voice, because I honestly believe everyone's voice matters, and I want more people to feel brave about telling their stories and owning their stories. So that's called So You Want to Start a Podcast. 
And then also Jolenta and I have our co-written book, How to Be Fine, coming out in March. And that's How to Be Fine, What We Learned from Living by the Rules of 50 Self-Help Books. And that one makes me laugh because <laughs> that's another cocktail party conversation. It's like, hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Fine. And I'm like, what does fine exactly mean? <laughs> so I'm really excited to, to hear what the baseline of fine is. But also I sense there's going to be a lot of humor in here because self-help books tell you to do 80,000 different things from go on diets to update your wardrobe, to organize your house, to yes. read these X books and then do all this homework and blah, blah, blah. So I'm interested to see what that prescriptions going to be from the two of you. So I'm really delighted. Um, mm -hmm. Kristen, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. I've enjoyed laughing with you. I've enjoyed delving into job loss because it's, it's an underrated and underspoken about loss that happens quite often, especially here in the United States where job security is more and more of a fleeting thing. Um, so thank you so much for your, for your time today and for coming on Coming Back. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so, so much to Kristen Meinzer for coming on Coming Back to talk about the underrepresented topic of job loss, as well as grief through the lens of self-help, self-love, and pop culture. Kristen came back by allowing herself to feel sad, attending to the well-being of her direct reports, and asking for help from others. You can find all of Kristen's work, including her podcasts and books, at kristenmeinzer.com. I highly, highly recommend you check out Buy the Book if you're looking for a good place to start. If you're looking for more grace, space, and room to breathe in the aftermath of loss, purchase a copy of my new book, Permission to Grieve Now, on Amazon. And remember, if you'd like to listen to the book for free, you can get it when you sign up as a new customer on audible.com. You can find a link to Permission to Grieve in the show notes. To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live grief support with me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash Shelby for Cynthia. Thank you so much this week to Joanne and Julie who pledged to support the show. I'll see you this week for our live grief support call on October 28th. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and tell a friend about Coming Back because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. <laughs>